You know, one of the hardest things I think that we deal with in our lives is when somebody wrongs us. Our emotions begin to betray us, and we start to act irrationally toward them oftentimes. Isn't that the case? I don't know if you can imagine that in your own life. Let me give you an example from mine. When I was about 13, 14, middle school age, uh, I was out in the park across the street from my house with a friend of mine named Grant. I'm throwing him under the bus here. You'll see why here in a moment. And there were a couple of other neighborhood kids in that park, and we got into a nice little pea gravel fight with each other. You know, one little piece of pea gravel here and there is not going to hurt anybody unless you, you have a, a lot of strength behind that. But very quickly, that turned into great handfuls of shotgun pea gravel as we're throwing it at each other. And Grant thought that it was going to be a fantastic idea to pick up a dirt clod and chuck it at one of these neighborhood kids. Well, little did Grant know that inside of that dirt clod was a very sharp rock, and it hit this kid. And you can imagine just the horror uh, on Grant's part when he realized what took place. But that kid's perspective, he was hurt, and there was a little bit of blood involved, and the tears started pouring. But very quickly after that, just rage washed over his face. And you could see that he intended to do harm. And very quickly after that, he was reaching down for a softball-sized rock, right? Irrationality, things that we wouldn't normally do. But on one perspective, it's very understandable that he would have that reaction, right? It's very natural to have some sort of a reaction of, of wrath and rage to being hurt. But you and I... We're called to be more than the natural man, aren't we? We're called to overcome a fleshly nature that is inerrant sometimes inside of us. Jesus informs us in the Sermon on the Mountain that you and I are supposed to be salt and light to this world. And we talked about this last week, but just to get our minds in, in focus here, Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. This is a statement that Jesus is giving in the Sermon on the Mountain to a new movement of people, the people that are recognizing in the presence of Jesus that the old human way of doing things was not in line with the God of all eternity. And Jesus is telling them that you have to look differently than the rest of the world, and even all of Israel at this point. If you're going to maintain your saltiness, Jesus might say, God is going to have to fundamentally change your heart and the way that you do things. And so we got to this place last week that Jesus calls you salty. Right? Jesus calls you salty in our current uh, cultural vernacular. That's not necessarily a good thing, but Jesus intends this to be a good thing for you and me when he calls you salty. In fact, he'll expand upon that in Luke chapter 14 when he writes this about salt. He says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's of no use for either the soil or the manure pile. It's thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. What's he talking about there? It's not good for the ground. It's not good for the manure pile. Well, 
when you and I think about salt, I think we're typically thinking about table salt, right? Just regular table salt. A Jewish person in Jesus' day is likely thinking more in terms of Dead Sea salt. And so one of the things that you might do with Dead Sea salt is when you're talking about the ground, you might spread it over the weeds and oversalt the weeds so that they will die. Or if you've grown a garden, right, and you know that the ground is not mineralized enough, you could use that salt because it has so many minerals in it as potash, so it would increase the growing uh, potential of that ground. And your saltiness, I think Jesus might say, will change for the better the growing environment of the kingdom as you and I engage in the world around us. Then he says the dung heap, the dung heap, really, what's that about? Well, here's a thought. When I was in Nicaragua, I was a missionary in Nicaragua, catch you up to speed for a while, and we had a, 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 an eco-sands latrine, is what they were called, that we built there. And one of the problems with latrines is the smell and the fact that there's a lot of potential disease in that area. And so what we would do is, after somebody had done their business, you would take ash from the fire, and you would throw it over that business, and eventually it would sanitize that and make it useful for growing things and manure later on. Plus, it would take care of the smell. And I think he might say your saltiness might change for the better. Or excuse me, your salty, you being salty when it's applied is going to challenge the fleshly nature of man, and when you're salty like Jesus is intending, it's going to help cover over the hurts and the problems and the stinkiness that this world tends to propagate. And it's going to have an effect, you being salty is going to have an effect on literally everything around you. And if it's going to have an effect on everything around you, it's certainly going to have an effect on your relationships as well. Right? Can we agree on that? Your saltiness is going to have an effect on your relationships. And I want to make this statement. Everything, like literally everything that you and I do, it's all about relationships. There's not a single thing that you and I engage in that doesn't have to do with relationships. In fact, Jesus, when he's asked about the greatest commandment, He'll say it's about two categories of relationships, right? It's about your relationship with God. He says, love God, and this is, these are my words, love God with everything that you are. He's quoting back from the Shema of the Old Testament, right? Love God with all your heart and soul and might. And so it's about your relationship with God, everything that we do. And it's also, he says, the second is like it. It's about your relationship with everybody else around you. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, these two categories of relationship are what it's all about. In fact, the whole Old Testament, what you and I call the Old Testament, that's what it was about. It was about those two categories of relationship. In fact, relationship is so important that you cannot not be in relationship. Have you ever thought about that? You cannot not be in relationship with people. You might try, Right? But the moment that you come in contact with somebody, even if you snub them, even if you don't pay attention to them, you and I are communicating something to that person about their worth. And so in communication, we're building a relationship. And so you can't not engage in relationship. The only question is, 
Do you want those relationships to be good and positive and kingdom honoring and kingdom growing? And it's even more important when we talk about our relationships with each other, right? The world is looking in. They're seeing how you and I interact with each other and making sure that our words match up with our actions. And so one of the key things to relationship is the ability to forgive the people that are around us, especially our brothers and sisters. Your spirit-filled ability to forgive is apparently key and central from Jesus' perspective. Consider it with me. The Lord's Prayer, right? Lord's Prayer is a very short prayer that he gave us to think through and pray to God. And he could have mentioned any of a number of things, but one of the key things that he mentions is this. God, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. He'll expound upon that a few verses later when he says, For if you forgive others their trespasses your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, here's where it's hard-hitting, right? Neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So we use that word trespasses. Some of your versions might say sin. If your brother sins against you, or if your brother is owing you a debt, and the idea is to forgive those things, and he wants us to forgive. Forgiveness is key. And it's going to have to look different. If we're going to be salty in our forgiveness, it's going to have to look different than the world's forgiveness, isn't it? And I want to make this statement that that the world does forgive, but it forgives very differently than Christians when they're living the salty life that Jesus wants them to. Matt mentioned uh, last week uh, some things that salt does when it is applied to things. And I want to do a compare and contrast with the world really quickly so we can see this here. Right? So the world does forgive. But salt, when it is applied to things, it enhances. Right? It enhances the flavor of things. It preserves things. And Matt talked about meat last week. And if Matt talks about meat, I trust it. That's an ongoing joke with us about how, how he, he, he consistently talks about meat. If salt is applied correctly to meat, it's going to preserve it indefinitely, right? And then it's finally going to uh, nurture. It's going to bring nourishment back to things like we were talking about with the soil. It's going to nurture things. And so the world does forgive, but worldly forgiveness happens when me forgiving you benefits me, Right? That's when worldly forgiveness happens. Salty forgiveness, on the other hand, it enhances relationship by building trust and being able to show vulnerability in the presence of another person. Worldly forgiveness, it's willing to throw relationships and people away when forgiveness isn't convenient or it's just too hard to accomplish. Salty forgiveness... It preserves relationships by inferring, this person is worthy of honor and respect, and I'm going to be spending eternity with them if they're my Christian brother or sister, so I might as well get on with making those relationships positive with them. And if we're not talking about a Christian brother or sister, right, they need to be in heaven with God and Jesus and all of the rest of us when they get there. And so I need to be building those relationships so that they know Jesus' forgiveness when it comes about. Worldly forgiveness, 
It never seeks to understand the other person's perspective. Salty forgiveness? It nurtures relationships by strengthening the bond and showing that you and I have the ability to empathize with the other person, right? To see things through their eyes, to make sure that I understand sometimes where they're coming from, where the world would not. Jesus, on his way to Jerusalem to be crucified not too long from this point in Matthew 18, has a whole teaching on dealing with the hard parts of relationship. He's going to start out with some advice on reconciliation with a brother when they sin against you. And then after that, Peter has a question about forgiveness, and he moves into a parable about forgiveness. And uh, we'll come back to Peter's question here in just a moment. But he has this parable. Jesus is in the habit, we know, of, of, uh, of giving us parables with hard teachings. And this, this is just one of those times. I'm not going to read it for us. This is Matthew 18, 21 and following. I encourage you to read it later on. Let me just give you a quick recount of this. There's a king. And he's reconciling some of the debts that people owe him. And he notices that one of his servants owes him a lot of money. And I mean a lot of money. And your version is going to say something like either 10 talents or 10 bags of gold. I don't know exactly how much that is. We don't know how much exactly that is. It's a lot. It's like a kajillion dollars a lot kind of thing, right? It's, it's something that he will never be able to repay. And the king is ready to throw this particular servant into, into slavery so that he can work off his debt to pay back all of that money that he owes him. And the servant cries out to the king and he says, hey, just have patience with me. I will repay it in time. In a moment, the king looks at the servant, he looks at the debt and he says, I'm going to have compassion on you. I'm just going to cancel that debt. I can only imagine how elated that servant was at that moment. But that particular servant goes out and finds another one of his fellow servants, and he owes him a piddly amount of money, a few hundred dollars, a thousand dollars in comparison to what he owed him, right? That particular servant can't pay back the first servant, and so the first servant reaches out irrationality and starts to strangle this servant, right? And when he can't pay him back, immediately he has him thrown into jail. Now, is a jail a good place to be able to work off a debt? No. His emotions got the better of him. Ah, the king hears about this particular, the particular actions of this servant, and he because he was unforgiving, throws him in jail. And God, uh, Jesus says, this is how God deals with your forgiveness and my forgiveness. He's forgiven us of huge things. And so the very, like literally the very least that we should do is when we come in contact with somebody else who sins against us, who has wronged us, who has offended us in a particular way, that we forgive those things because they are so small in comparison to what God has done for us. Well, in between Jesus is talking about reconciling and this parable that he just gave about forgiveness, Peter has a question. He wants to know if we can put a number on this whole forgiveness thing, 
right? He says in Matthew 21, 18, 21, Lord Jesus, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And I think Peter thinks he's being generous at this moment. As he's putting a number on this, I think he's generous. Seven, that's a good, solid, complete biblical number. Have I completely forgiven him if I've forgiven him seven times? After all, that's a lot. If somebody has hurt you and sinned against you, to forgive them one, two, three, four, five, six, seven times. What Jesus says to Peter should rock all of us back on our heels. What he says to Peter should blow us away. Jesus says to Peter, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Or maybe it's seven times 70, depending on the version that you're reading out of. Here's what I want to say about that discrepancy. Right, it's not really a discrepancy. We, just, we, we, we don't quite understand what the languaging is there. This is not about a math equation to Jesus. This is not about a particular number of things and then your forgiveness is, is free of that person and you can move on to something else. Jesus is always referring to something deeper. Right? He's always wanting to get at the heart of an issue. And where Jesus is going with this is he's referencing back a story literally from the very beginning of our scripture. We know Cain and Abel. Cain has killed his brother Abel, and he's received a curse because of that. And he's fearful that somebody, when they see or hear that he has killed his brother, is going to harm him. And God says, you know what, if somebody harms you, I will bring vengeance on them sevenfold. Does it say that Cain will bring vengeance on himself sevenfold? No, God says, I will be the one that brings vengeance on that person sevenfold. Well, Cain has uh, moves and, and, and builds a city after that point and establishes things. And we know that things, as far as humanity are going, are not taking a, a positive direction. Violence has already entered into the picture, not to forget what his parents have done in the garden. And five generations after Cain, a man named Lamech is born. Lamech is the first one to take more than one wife for himself. And Lamech has a moment in his life where, and we don't know the exact situation, but some young buck comes up and either smacks him on the cheek or has offended him in some way. He strikes him in in some way, either physically or personally. And Lamech writes a song about the pride that he has over killing this man, right? He reaches out in his own irrationality, in his own rage, in his own vengeance, and he kills this person. And he writes a song and he sings it to his wives. And I want to read that song to you and see if some of these numbers sound familiar. Ada and Zillah, his wives, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold, or seven times 70-fold. 
In other words, I will take out vengeance for myself this amount of times. And what Jesus does in a moment with Peter and you and me is reverse all of the negativity and wrath of human history. Right? If you are going to be salty, David, in your forgiveness, you are going to have to be the anti-Lamech. You're going to have to go to the other end of the spectrum in offering forgiveness. Lamech wanted to take out vengeance that much. You're going to have to go the other way. So what? What even is forgiveness? We know that it's not punishment. We know that it's not revenge. What is it? And I think maybe the best way to talk about this is to start out with what forgiveness is not first. Forgiveness is not equal to reconciliation. They are linked, and reconciliation, right, the the coming back uh, together of people once there's been harm between them, is the point. It's the point. But what are you going to do? What are you going to do if that person doesn't want your forgiveness? Or what are you going to do if they reject you and don't want to talk to you? What are you going to do if they've passed from this life? Are you still supposed to offer that person forgiveness? Jesus, I think, would say yes. Yes. And so reconciliation is the point, but reconciliation takes two. Forgiveness just takes you, right? Me being able to offer something. We'll talk about what that means here in a few moments. But so we know that forgiveness is not reconciliation, but it's also not you being a doormat. And I I want to say this because I think this is important. I think that we've used the concept of forgiveness to to really uh, uh, um, uh, abuse this passage about forgiving like this infinite number of times somebody who has harmed us. And Jesus doesn't want you to be walked all over. He doesn't. He doesn't want you to be in a dangerous situation over and over and just writing carte blanche forgiveness to somebody. He doesn't mean that they have infinite access back to your life, in other words, right? Offering somebody forgiveness doesn't mean that, uh, that, that I, I just offer them all of the trust in the world before they had ever sinned against me. And I think that's important because even in this size of a room, I can almost guarantee that there are people in here who have endured abuse after abuse. And it's not good for you, it's not good for the offender for them to have full access of your life. And so it's not about you being a doormat, it's not necessarily about reconciliation. What is it then? Forgiveness is letting God have the reins. It's not removing the consequences of the offender, but it is loosening our personal grip on what vengeance means to me. Paul is going to remind us in Romans chapter 12, 17, that we should strive for peace with everyone and not to take vengeance for ourselves, right? Because in Cain's story, right, it was God who said, I will take vengeance in this if somebody harms you. Paul reminds us that vengeance is not mine. It belongs to God himself. It is letting go of our right to get somebody back for what they've done to us. Salty forgiveness. 
is recognizing that you and I are forgiven. So we forgive. It becomes a piece of who we are in the presence of Jesus. It's a spirit-filled activity. It's considering others more important than ourselves, as as Paul would talk about in in Philippians chapter 2. And it becomes a freedom from the offender. Because there's two wounds that happen when somebody sins against us and harms us and offends us, right? There is the actual offense that takes place. But then there's me dwelling on the offense that takes place over and over and over in my mind. And me wanting them to repay me for what they've taken from me. By the way, can I say this? Rarely. Will anybody ever pay you back what you internally think that they owe you? It's a very rare thing that they will actually pay you back what you think that you are owed. Forgiveness as a a concept is simple. It means debt canceled. I'm not saying that it's easy. I understand there are major emotions that are involved when sometimes when we offer forgiveness for some of the big things where people have hurt us. But as a concept, it's super easy. It means debt canceled. In fact, the language that's used when talked about forgiveness is that of finances. And I think that's why Jesus, in that parable, uses uh, the the money that's owed the king and the money that's owed the servant. Forgiveness is super simple as a concept. And it's why Jesus, when he's teaching about that, does those things. For example, if I had... A brand new cell phone. Those things are expensive, aren't they? Several hundred dollars, if not more. And somebody comes along and arrogantly and flippantly just slaps it out of my hand and it falls to the ground and the screen shatters and it's completely unfunctional at that point. I pick it up, I'm trying to mess with it. The natural, fleshly human reaction to that offense is going to be, you blank me a new cell phone. You owe me a new cell phone, or you owe me the money for a new cell phone. Salty forgiveness in that situation says, you don't owe me anything. Debt canceled. If that one's hard, think about all of the rest of the things that are not intrinsically uh, connected to the finances of forgiveness, because we know that it goes beyond finances, don't we? About five years ago, a young, white, female officer in the Dallas area, Amber Geiger, walks into Botham Jean's apartment. She thinks it's her apartment, according to her, she thinks it's her apartment that she's walking into. She's mistaken, and she sees a young black man in her apartment. She pulls out her pistol and shoots him to death. Botham Jean was a brother of ours. He went to Harding University, brother of ours kind of thing. You can imagine the hurt all over the nation. A white officer walks into a black man's apartment and kills him on his own turf. Amber was convicted of murder. She took something away from that whole family that she could never give back. The family had an opportunity at her sentencing trial to address her. Most of them declined, but Botham's younger brother decided to address Officer Amber Geiger on that stand. And I want you to see 
salty forgiveness in action. If you truly are sorry, I know I can speak for myself. I, I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. And I don't think anyone could say it. Again, I'm speaking for myself, not even bad for my family. But I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did, but I see, I, I personally want the best for you. And I, I wasn't going to ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you. Because I know that's, what, that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be give your life to Christ. I'm not going to say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person. And I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but can, can I give her a hug, please? Please. Yes. Amber took away something from that family that she could never repay. Botham's younger brother struggled to get the words out. But brothers and sisters, that is salty forgiveness in action. I don't want harm for you. I leave this at the foot of God. And that's what salty forgiveness is, is leading, leaving whatever hurt and problem is in the, in, at the feet of God. And I think sometimes we stop there, and I'll be quick about this, but I, I, I think it, it's important to talk about a process of forgiveness. It's not the only process that you can go through. I put this on the back of your bulletin so that you can remember it as well. How do I forgive? When I know that somebody's hurt me, when I know that somebody has, has uh, offended me, first thing that I suggest you do is talk about who it is, very specifically. Who it is that have, has hurt you? What did they do to you? What is the hurt that you feel because of it? Have you even done the work to name the emotions that are behind those feelings toward them. And the second thing is this. What is it that they owe you? What would it mean specifically for them to be able to pay you back for what they've taken from you? Third thing is this. Pray about it. Get it all out in the presence of God. Get all of those hard emotions out in God's presence. And the way through these emotions is not to avoid them, Christian. It is to embrace them, to lean into them in the presence of God. And God wants to handle those hard emotions for you and me. 
He wants to be the one. Can I point you to several of David's psalms? Psalm 3 is the one that's coming to mind for me. David is running from his enemies out in the wilderness. And part of that psalm, he says, God, strike them on the cheek, break their teeth. We're like, oh, David, hold on. It's not what a good Israelite boy would say. What would you have him do? Would you have him be the one that breaks teeth himself? Or would you have him express the fact that he's feeling these things in front of God and giving that over to God? God wants to handle those hard things that are in your heart. Lean into them in God's presence as you're considering these people. And then when you're done, even if it's just to the air, we say, John or Jane Doe Christian, I forgive you. Debt canceled. You don't owe me anything. I've left that at the feet of Jesus. I've left it at God's, in God's hands. I get it. Thinking in these terms, being salty in our forgiveness is challenging. It's hard. But let us remind ourselves that this is exactly what Jesus did on the cross. Yes, for your sins, but he's also looking out over all of his murderers when he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Listen, we throw rocks. It's what we do, right? Oftentimes we don't mean to throw rocks and hurt people or slap cell phones out of people's hands, but it's what we do. And if we're going to be salty in our Christian walk, we can't drive out darkness by creating more darkness in our interactions with each other. We have to be different from the rest of this world as we learn to say, debt canceled. It's a spirit-filled activity, and it's brought on when the spirit comes inside of you, and that happens when you've committed your life to Jesus. If you haven't done that this morning, we're going to sing a song now. If you have that need or any other need, would you come while we stand and sing?